Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. And just before we begin the show, I'd like to thank our sponsors. ShopDrop is an iPhone app that lists every sample sale in New York. So if you want to buy designer clothes without breaking the bank, go to your iPhone and download the ShopDrop app today. I'll just start with something I heard Rebitzins once talking about how the speakers in the Jewish community are mostly in Jewish education, which is an interesting concept, except I know speakers who talk about other subjects as well, and that has sent me in the direction of searching for speakers. And you, someone I didn't have to search for too long, <laughs> uh, came right up. So today on the show, we have Dvora Enten, a clinical social worker who specializes in women's health, infertility, pregnancy loss, postpartum mood, and anxiety disorders. And in addition to being a specialist in these areas, uh, Dvora Enten also has the sensitivity that comes with issues that come up uh, regarding the Jewish religious community and other other social issues that come with that as well. So it's a nice package, which makes you an incredible speaker. And uh, that's just an introduction <laughs> to explain to our audience why we have a therapist on our show where we talk about the arts and entertainment. And people use you as a source of entertainment at events, also as a source of education and awareness that our Jewish community so badly needs. So let's dive right in. Uh, Dvora, thanks for coming on the show. Could you please tell us a little bit more about your work and your interest for the work and how you got started? Sure. So, so thank you. First of all, it's an honor to be here and joining you today on your podcast. Um, I I feel so passionately about the work that I do and have been privileged to um, kind of accompany women and couples on their experiences through some of the most complex issues that they will face in their life. Um, I really do see it as a privilege, as something that when you begin to bear witness to the struggle of others and you can create a moment with them where they can trust you and you can be a trusted source of support and not run away from the pain of another person because sometimes it's just, it's difficult to stand in the presence of that kind of um, pain and 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 I'll use the word trauma, but it is a privilege to be given that opportunity. Um, I would say like I, I I would say that it's almost difficult to say where I started. Uh, I I look back on my my early years of marriage and and notice that there's always been something about the world of infertility that has kind of pulled me in. Uh, I remember I recently reflected that I had done a volunteer program for the women of the Nishay community in South Florida on infertility sensitivity. This was before I knew anything about the subject, before I became a therapist, many years before I became a therapist, but there was something about that topic that just drew me as something that we don't talk enough about and something that I, I, I felt um, drawn to. And, and sure enough, like over time, this has become more of a professional, uh, responsibility and, and opportunity. So I have been trained 
from the perinatal loss or the pregnancy loss perspective with the Miss Foundation in, in Sedona, Arizona, where I also used to live in, in the Phoenix area, but met this extraordinary woman named Joanne Cacciatore, who became kind of a mentor professionally to me as somebody who introduced this idea of how do we support the bereaved and how do we remove the medicalization of grief? So we're very quick to diagnose grief as a problem when really grief is something that's very much a part of our lifespan and our life experiences. Uh, so that kind of launched me in the in the professional capacity. But on a personal note, I met a woman who is had created an, a, a, an initiative to support moms who are going through perinatal loss, to going through pregnancy loss in the, actually in the hospitals. And her name is Malky Claristenfeld, and she eventually founded an organization called Kinefiam, uh, where we train people to go into the hospital and support women at bedside um, through the loss of a, either a miscarriage or a stillbirth or a, a child that isn't going to live past delivery. So those are the kind of the, the loss and the infertility. And then I got trained in postpartum depression with Postpartum Support International. And from there, I feel like I finally have the credentials for something that my heart has been speaking to for a very long time. Wow. So you definitely had that pull all along. And yeah. that's incredible. How would you say this topic or the awareness is different in the Jewish world, in the from Orthodox Jewish world, as opposed to the mainstream world, because I, I've listened to a lot of material and podcasts, and there's really also a limited amount of awareness, and it it's also a taboo subject in the mainstream world. So my question is, what's the difference? What are the underlying differences in these communities? For sure. I think that's a fabulous question. And I think that the primary issue is that we are very much a private community. So our we have we really value privacy in our personal lives, in our in our um, kind of in the community of in our family of origin. So what happens between husband and wife tends to be private. What happens inside the bedroom is private. What happens around issues of conversations around issues of conception or sexuality? very, very private. Um, and so recognizing that things like pregnancy and conception and fertility are very, be kind of fall under that category of these things that are private topics. And so it's a high conflict kind of um, area where we, uh, there's landmines here where we're saying, do I talk about something that I'm, is this something that I'm supposed to talk about publicly? Is this something that I'm allowed to talk about publicly? And why is there so much shame layered into talking about something that should be, um, that should be something that I, I want to be able to get support from those that are in my immediate family and from my communal family. And so I think when we're dealing with a with kind of a religious or communal norms of privacy, one that that's a prized pri um, priority of our community. There's this gray area where things happen in a private life that we need support outside of our personal uh, personal um, relationship. So it's more support is needed beyond just the wife getting support from her husband or or the husband getting support from his his brother. It, it's something where we need to get support more often from a broader network of supporters. And I think that within our Orthodox community, there still is that taboo about topic, talking about these issues. In the Hasidic world, even I work very comfortably with and, and, and frequently in the Hasidic world, um, the, the conversation around pregnancy also doesn't happen. So even, you know, many mothers will not tell their, their living children, their older children that they are pregnant. Um, and 
that so what happens if we didn't discuss that there was a pregnancy we also didn't discuss that there was a lost pregnancy so it layers you know kind of challenges to those kind of conversations and anytime there's something that's private sometimes it, it kind of veers into this world of is it a secret and if it's a secret is there shame attached to it so because of that kind of um, blending of of experiences many women who experience loss specifically and for sure infertility struggle with this idea of being full of shame of being uncomfortable to discuss with others of saying like i i'm not sure how to have this conversation with you about something that it feels i'm like embarrassed or uncomfortable about because women feel like they have failed like their bodies have failed them and so do we really typically publicize our failures we usually just publicize our successes and um i think that's one piece the second piece of it is any time a person struggles with something, there is a strong fear of being like outed in the community as having had that struggle. We deal with this in mental illness all the time. We keep it secretive. We keep it, we'll call it private, but there's a secretive component to it because maybe my family will be labeled as a family who struggles with depression, anxiety, fertility, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Will my children be married off? Will my siblings have trouble with shaduchim? That's where this kind of communal issue kind of goes really off the rails. I hear you're saying so many good points and the idea of it being a secret and if it's a secret is a bad. It reminds me of something my uncle, who's a doctor, he said, if your family does not have mental health illness, that means it just wasn't diagnosed yet. (laughs) (laughs) So... And, and the same thing with pregnancy loss and infertility. I think everyone, whether they know them or not, has someone in their life, at least one person who has dealt with that. You know, I, I think it's also something that when the community, as any religious community will be, you will have the same experience in a, in a deep Catholic community, in a deep Mormon community, in a, in a Muslim community, there's a heavy emphasis on building a family. And when the family is missing, Um, it is such a public um, experience. There isn't a way to say like, this is something that's private that we don't, that nobody else knows about. It's something that is so public, everybody knows. And so when something is so public and yet it's so personal, it also is like, do I really want to put my stuff out there to other people? It's already out there to other people. So it's an everybody knows, like everybody knows who just gets, you know, newly married, young married, the first thing they people experience when they walk into a shul is everybody looks at their belly to see if they're showing, if they're pregnant. And in some communities it's asked like, well, new, do we have news yet? Um, and I've even heard from, from young couples where they feel like they have, so they, they feel like they have failed their parents by not providing them that grandchild within that first year and the uncomfortable feelings that come along with failure, you know, even, uh, it, it's just, it's, it's so complex for the couples. I totally hear that. And we live in the same community or at least in the same neighborhood. And I appreciate this about this community here in Philadelphia is that, uh, there, there's such a variety here. I don't, think the expectation of having a family right away is placed on community members and which is why I felt so comfortable right away in this community because you weren't looked at right away where's your belly and it was nice for me especially because I didn't have kids for five years but (laughs) um, another issue or another 
thing I thought about is, you know, if you think about the male Orthodox or anyone who's learning, they learn the intricacies and the details and all kinds of stuff that we call private and inappropriate. And a lot of it doesn't even have to do with them or their anatomy. And somehow the women are shushed or shamed or it's secret and private while the men are talking and they're not doctors about halacha and nida and all other things I never learned about <laughs> in the Gemara inside. That's an interesting point. I mean, I really haven't given um, as much consideration to that. I think that there's this idea of it's in the context of learning, so therefore it's acceptable. I would say to you that there are definitely some aspects of the learning that are not taught to the boys and that are only taught to them when they're older. Um, I would say that it isn't that we are shamed. I don't, I want to be cautious about saying that the community shames these issues or pushes shame onto these issues or pushes shame or teaches us this shame. I think a lot of it is a self-imposed shame. And I would say that there isn't, that shame is something that is, is experienced outside of a religious world. It's, 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 uh, a it's very a human presence. It's a human experience. It's something that, you know, Brene Brown of, um, of extraordinary TEDx and Ted talk fame, who, um, just published an ex amazing, amazing, um, um, it's not really a documentary, but a beautiful workshop on Netflix that I highly recommend. Um, that's all she, all her research is about shame and vulnerability. So the shame factor is something that has a little bit more, I would say is a little bit more problematic in our world, but it isn't that it's imposed by the community, that we are not shamed by having infertility, or we are not shamed by having a pregnancy loss, but we experience that discomfort and the shame factor, um, but it's self-imposed. I want to be cautious about kind of layering uh, that the community or the religion shames women that are struggling with infertility. Cause I, I don't think that they do. Yeah. And so. I agree with you though. Like the men, you know, the fact that the men learn some of the biological issues is, is kind of curious to me. And, and I would say that there's definitely significant movement in the more modern mainstream and modern Orthodox communities to further educate our younger daughters about these issues. But I would say to you that many of the parents of the children are just as uncomfortable having those conversations. <laughs> I agree with you 100%. And what's interesting is that when I went through my miscarriage a few months ago, that's exactly what I felt, self-imposed shame. And when I shared that with my friends and family members, they were surprised that that's what I felt. So I'm just validating what you just said. It's not community-imposed shame. It's self-imposed shame. And and the people around you don't even realize that that's what you're feeling. They think yeah. you're just sad or that you're angry. Yeah. And I would say that for many women, they are as well, sad and angry. And then there becomes, especially for those that are dealing with fertility struggles over longer periods of time, where perhaps they're going through treatment and they have multiple, multiple unsuccessful or what we call failed cycles, which even just the term failure has its own level of shame to it, right? <clears throat> um, but that what these women and what I have heard most powerfully from the women is this feeling of disconnect to their bodies. Um, and it becomes actually almost like a body hatred issue. And it becomes almost like their mind, not across the board, but there are women that I work with that there's almost becomes this disconnect between their mind and their body, um, that their body has failed them, that they are angry at their body. Sometimes they self-harm with uh, food overeating or undereating or kind of not treating their body kindly. It's an interesting um, ongoing challenge for women who feel very 
um, disconnected between the top and the bottoms, you know, the upper half of their body versus the lower half of their body. Um, there is definitely experiencing of, of, and, and this is, is more sociologically imposed, but what am I? And I've been taught about, I have been kind of raised since little, little childhood to become a mom, like every little girl, again, sociologically, psychologically imposed, but uh, every little girl stuffs her belly with pillows. You know, my daughter was a was a Brooklyn Insta blogger on Purim, and she was, of course, pregnant. And I'm thinking, where did my 12-year-old and my 9-year-old come up with this concept that to become an Insta blogger from Brooklyn, she besides the big pom-pom hat, she also had a stuffed belly. And I think about that if from very young ages, our children are acculturated to become mothers and then that isn't happening for them, there's a strong sense of like a loss of identity. What am I if I am not a mom? And I would say for those that have experienced loss, they even more deeply struggle with this idea. So I was pregnant, I had something inside of me, I had all these dreams and ideas of what this baby was going to become, I had already registered this child in preschool in my head, and then I, the pregnancy was not successful, the baby died, what am I now? Am I still a mom? Do I still have the identity of motherhood? I feel like I was a mother to this baby, but I never got to mother this baby. And so those are just some of the complex feelings of motherhood and feminine or female or womanhood identity that women really struggle with. Wow. It's so true because from a very young age, women are equal mothers. They play with dolls. So you go out. I know you speak a lot, you have speaking engagements, and I understand therapy and it's a process and people come to you and you help them over time. But I'm also curious as to what you're able to give over in in a 45-minute session or in an hour and a half session. You You have a big chip, <laughs> you have this huge rock you need to bring awareness to, you have to explode a bubble here. So if you can share just a few tips or a few points that you sure. find the most crucial things, if someone here is listening to this and is going through something or knows someone who is going through something, what what can you tell them? So I would say that I'm going to separate out because I do speak about multiple issues. I speak, but my primary communal conversations is going to be about building a more sensitive community. It is about saying to you, not the person, not necessarily the person in the room who's struggling, although they usually show up too, but the people that are sitting next to the women that are struggling, the moms of the young women who are struggling with fertility, the sisters, the sister-in-laws, God help all those mother-in-laws, <laughs> you know, the mother-in-laws that have to really learn this Like, So I look at it as a language of compassion and it's a language of empathic conversation. So my intent and my goal or my kind of, I would almost say mission in those, those 45 minutes to an hour workshop, <clears throat> excuse me, is how do I, how do I open a conversation with somebody or acknowledge the pain that's in the room? And how do I do that in a way that gives her permission to respond or not respond to make sure that she doesn't have to take care of me and my like discomfort with this conversation, but ultimately about saying, this is something that if you want me to be at your side, I will be there. And the biggest message is just keep showing up. So when somebody has a loss and somebody says, oh, I'm so sorry, 
or maybe they don't even know to say that. And maybe they say things like, at least you got pregnant or, oh, was it early? As if that makes it better. Or was it real? Um, how do you feel now? Uh, not addressing the fact, oh, I, I'm glad that you're feeling better now as if in six months they won't still be struggling with it. So acknowledging that there is ongoing conversation that's necessary around these topics. And when a woman becomes pregnant, let's say for example, on the loss issue or the fertility issue, when she success, she is, is, is finally able to take a baby home from that hospital with her, um, and I know I'm focusing on the woman, we'll put the men, that's a different conversation actually, but for the woman, when she's finally able to bring that baby home from the hospital, it's not like, oh, Bar Hashem, now everything's fine, okay? She still holds those experiences as a part of her identity. <laughs> the goal is not, let me move on. The goal is, let me step forward. The goal is, this becomes part of her story of identity as in, into her experience of motherhood. It becomes one of integration. So when a woman finally is, takes that baby home from the hospital, we still wanna remember the loss that she had a year ago. We still wanna be able to say to her, how are you feeling? It might be a little difficult coming home from the hospital. I know you're thinking about the ones that you never got to bring home. Now, not everybody's comfortable having those conversations, but I feel that if I'm in front of a room and I can just bring up those concepts to somebody who has no, dare I say, shaykhs to it, right? Like there's no connection to this experience. Maybe they never actually had a conversation with somebody who has dealt with infertility. Um, so often I'll hear, so they'll just do IVF and then it'll be fine, right? We have to create much more safe spaces, many more safe spaces for people to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable and to share with those around them. What happens is our com our challenge in community, and this is not just the Orthodox community, this is the, the world community, is we don't create that pause in conversation. What happens is what with the real work, the real compassion, the real empathy is what happens in the space, right? There's a great podcast called Terrible Thanks for Asking. Right. I'm, I'm sure I share that one with you where somebody, you know, this woman who had gone through tremendous loss and everyone's like, oh, and how are you? And she says, I really wanted to say to them, I'm terrible. Thanks for asking, because too often the only answer that's acceptable socially is Baruch Hashem, or I'm, I'm OK or, you know, day by day. And it doesn't give authenticity to the emotional pain that that woman is in. And sometimes it's less about saying, and how are you? That, and it's much more about saying, tell me how you're doing today. Are you sleeping? I'm just wondering any, you know, I just want you to know that I, I haven't forgotten what you've been through. And I think that that remembering, that acknowledging, that creating safe and open vulnerable spaces with those that you're close with or even not as close with, that's the essence of the goal of having a community awareness workshop. And I believe you're doing amazing work with this because how, how can someone leave a workshop like this and not be more sensitive or just find one thing they're going to implement and find and use? Yeah, and I, and I would say to you that I really do believe that our one of the things that makes this our from community unique and one of the things that I think that we can kind of put a gold star on our page 
is the fact that I think that in general, our community strives towards being more compassionate, to being more sensitive. Some, not everybody, not everybody gets the need to do that, but across across communities nationally, we are the most extraordinary community of people, tribal community, where we have organization upon organization upon organization to help the most, you know, minute issues that people face. You know, the person who has cancer, the person, the the program for the siblings of those who have cancer, the program for the mother-in-laws of those who are dealing with cancer. Like there's so many amazing organizations that are there to to support the different challenges that people have. That's our gold star. That's what makes us that's where we shine as a community. And that's where the privilege is. That's so true. You also specialize in postpartum depression and other issues that are not so physical. So can you talk a little bit about that and how I feel like the the hard thing about it is that you could be in it and not know you're in it. So I just like you to talk a little bit more about that and how we as a community can be more aware. And since we do have that gold star as a community and for that, that's what mm-hmm. we do to yeah. just have more awareness and for sure. Yeah. I think that that's one of the things that kind of like, I continue to kind of take pause in because while there are, there is one or two very small organizations that are focused on, um, postpartum mood and anxiety disorders in our community, there are, they are very few and their resources are very small. And what I struggle with is that if we know that at least approximately one in I think we're talking about one in seven or one in eight women are dealing with a postpartum mood and anxiety disorder in their lifetime. And we are in a community of women who have an average of somewhere between five and 12 children. And every time a woman has a pregnancy, she still has that one in seven risk. And, you know, what are we doing and why are we not talking way more about this? than we are about issues of childhood cancer, let's say. This is something that there is not a question in my mind that there are thousands of women in our community who are struggling. And like you said, don't recognize the symptoms or don't know where to turn to get help. Or once again, that because of that risk of shame are not finding the language with which to communicate just how difficult this experience has been. Recent studies that just came out from um, British Columbia, University of British Columbia described um, Something that every therapist, I think, who works in this field knows is that we are are really suspecting a much higher prevalence of postpartum anxiety than we are postpartum depression. And yet we call it postpartum. First of all, a lot of people just refer to, oh, she has some postpartum. Well, guess what? Anybody who has a baby is postpartum, okay? <laughs> it is postpartum something. It's postpartum depression, anxiety. Postpartum OCD has a very high um, prevalence uh, where a woman can develop um, obsessive thoughts and obsessive thinking um, and sometimes compulsions that go along with them, although they don't have to. But these are challenges that women kind of are so caught off guard because the experience is supposed to be joyful, right? We we only talk about the joys of motherhood, right? Um, and we, we don't talk about the oys part. We talk about the simcha of it and the celebration of it. And I, I love when I see a new mom and I'll say, so how are you sleeping? And they're like, I haven't slept in three days. And I was like, okay, so what can we do to help get you some sleep? Uh, sleep has become one of the top priorities in the psychological world that we are just kind of poo-pooing with, ch- with our moms. And yet I heard a psychiatrist openly say, 
I won't give her a single medication in the hospital. And we're talking about somebody who has to be hospitalized because of her, her illness. I will not give her a single medication except to get her sleeping. And once she is slept, we must get her slept. And once she has slept, then we will address her mental health, um, which just gives you an understanding of how powerful and complex postpartum depression and anxiety is because we just have this expectation that new moms are going to be unslept, uncared for, unnurtured, um, or have limited support given to them. Now, again, you talk to me about the Orthodox community, the from community, again, gold star. We have meal trains that are set up. We have aim the we have, we have, you know, beta Cholmas where women get to go and experience, um, a few days or a week, or maybe even a little bit more where she gets totally cared for, fed, nurtured. And then she comes home <laughs> and then she comes home to parent perhaps five or six or seven other children at home while there. So, and while most people are good enough, some people don't struggle. What some people are not good enough and are really struggling postpartum depression presents like a typical depression, except that it's an agitated depression. So that means that it's not classically where the woman's in bed, can't get out of bed. I, I have no ability to get off the couch. It's an agitated depression. She's up, she's caring for that baby. She might even get dressed, but she feels so hopeless and so agitated. Um, there's that blending it with the anxiety where she um, is kind of feeling like she's crawling the walls and her mind is racing all the time. So even when the baby has, is sleeping at night, you know, during the day, people say, oh, sleep when the baby's sleeping. Yeah, well, what if I have to go do laundry? Like, I can't just sleep when the baby's sleeping. So let's assume the baby has gone to sleep for the night, the other children are sleeping, and mom is not able to sleep because her mind is racing. Maybe she's even checking multiple times on the baby's breathing or kind of making uh, multiple checks of the house and making sure that things are safe and secure to keep her family safe. That's where things blend into this, you know, kind of veer into this unhealthy and more diagnostic um, issue. So we know that these issues are prevalent. I would say to you that, of course, we go into the more emergent situation if a woman feels like she um, has, is, kind of talking, I'm going to say talking crazy, but having more psychotic thoughts. So sometimes in postpartum, we will see women who develop a postpartum psychosis. Those are the more extreme cases. Those are the moms that perhaps um, hurt their babies, kill their babies, kill themselves. Those cases are extremely rare. What's more common is the intrusive thinking these scary thoughts about my baby. One of the most classic thoughts would be things like, I'm not cutting vegetables right now. I cannot use a knife with the baby in the room because I have an imaginary, like kind of a vision of that knife jumping across the room and slashing the baby. I would never do that. What a horrible mother I am that I would have such horrible thoughts. And those thoughts are intrusive. So um, everybody experiences intrusive thoughts, but for the postpartum mom or the woman that's dealing with it from a more um, diagnostic you know, it's reached the points of diagnosis, that mom is just not able to push those thoughts away. And it just begins to kind of fester and make her feel terrible. So that's kind of like in a nutshell. Um, and what postpartum depression, and anxiety, and some of the other features look like. Um, this is something that with help, with support, and very often with medication, things will get better. And just by the way, I think it's important to note that Many of these features will develop at the end towards pregnant in pregnancy. They're called perinatal because it's during the pregnancy and up to a year, some even say two years after, depending on what you know what you want to call it. But um, 
giving women information is the power. These symptoms can present before delivery, get her the help that she needs early, and she's going to do great. And the family will do well, too. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> there's so much. I know. I like loaded. <laughs> it's good. This is good information. And it's so important. I know I say that word so often. <laughs> I feel like I'm aware of these things and still hearing it is just, I, I would just assume every woman suffers from some form of uh, postpartum depression, anxiety, or OCD. Um, I would say too, one thing to, I think it's important to like classify that or clarify that. So, or to qualify that. So every, many women will experience what we call baby blues. Baby blues will last two weeks postpartum. If she's experienced those baby blues, that hormonal fluctuation after two weeks, it's no longer baby blues. So if a woman comes in and says to me a month later, six weeks later, I know I'm just struggling with baby blues. No, you're not it's accelerated to something more significant. Um, and I think that that's where it's important for women to have information and knowledge, because let's be honest, when mom's not healthy, the family unit isn't healthy either. Mom tends to be the center point of the family. They are the maypole. And when the maypole is wavering, everything is floating in the wind as well. And, you know, we want to create health, healthy families. We've got to make sure that mom gets the help that she needs to maintain stability and security and the health of the broader family. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to share or you feel we haven't talked about? Or maybe anything personal or a story? Sure. I think that what I find so powerful is if you sit in a room and you turn to the woman next to you and you say, I really struggled after I had a baby. And there is such a huge chance that that woman will say, oh, my God, so did I after my second. And if she turns to the woman next to her and she says, I really struggled after the birth of my second baby. I was just having a really hard time, like, keeping it together. It is so likely that woman will say, oh, my God, me too. Or my sister did too. And I think that when we look back in time, you know, certain, I, I just remember certain families that were really struggling. And when I look at it retrospectively, that mom was struggling with postpartum depression. And she didn't get the help that she needed because we don't have enough language around these issues. But what I think that's so important is that first and foremost about any of these issues is open communication. So if you are a mom, of, if, you're a, if you have a, a friend, make sure that you're checking in with her. If you're a mom of a newly married young woman, check, talk to her about these are some of the things that might happen. Get your information in order so that you can kind of pay attention and support her when and if things go kind of off kilter. So again, knowledge is power. The more we know, the quicker somebody gets help, the less um, the less they will struggle and the less um, kind of deep it's going to get for her because she's going to be scooped up and given the help that she needs. Again, therapy, medication, with good support system around her, she is going to get well. I think it's, you know, just and that there really are amazing resources out there. So you mentioned support system, and I think we'll end with that, is that a major part of the support system are the husbands or the fathers of the family. And I feel like everything's focused on the mom. On the mom. She's not well. She needs to get better. And mm -hmm. it's on her to get better. And first of all, the 
the husbands play a huge role in helping that happen. And they, they probably also need a lot of support. I'm just curious, is there a support system for the men to learn the skills or to, I mean, they don't really get a chance to grieve or go through whatever they go through. Again, it's like the problem is on the woman and the solution also is on the woman to figure out the solution. And I'm just wondering if there's anything in place to help the men be more armed with tools to, to right. help be part of the solution. So I think that, you know, there's a big push to say that this is not a maternal health issue, that these are family issues, that this is the issue of a family. Um, and to move away from, you know, maternal mental health to family mental health or a partner, whatever, however you want to look at it. But like, this is a family issue. When mom is sick, dad is struggling too. And yes, it is, it is not his responsibility to get her well, but what I have seen is in the typical family, husband is desperate to help his wife. Um, sometimes they don't have the language with which to do it. Sometimes they don't know the resources with which to do it. Very often the men will turn to their rough to get guidance. And hopefully there are more and more about him today who are well-educated and being able to say, um, I, I know a great resource for you to get your wife the help that she needs. Um, and we have to do a better job of educating the husbands about how to effectively support their wives. One of the challenges with that, to be honest, is that we have to know, we being a woman, a mom, I need to know what my needs are in order to ask for my needs to be met, okay? When I'm sick, it might be really difficult for me to even identify or verbalize what my needs are. And so sometimes support has to be in the form of baby um, nighttime coverage, you know, if financially available, making sure that mother has slept, um, making sure that she's getting in to see a really awesome reproductive psychiatrist, which are psychiatrists that are specialists in working with women in the postpartum and while pregnant periods of their lives. Um, there is so much misinformation out there about medication and nursing and medication and pregnancy. Most, many, many medications are fully safe and recommend, you know, recommended enough to keep mom healthy and stable because that becomes the priority. Um, in terms of men's resources, uh, one of the, the one resource I, there's many fatherhood related, um, organizations out there, but the postpartum support international actually has a dad's chat every other month with Dr. Daniel Singley, where men can gather by phone, totally virtually and anonymously to get the support that they need. What I have learned is that in a typically healthy couple, dad is desperate to be her partner. He is desperate to help her. He is de desperate to step into this, you know, kind of into the muck with her. Um, he doesn't necessarily know how. And so one of the things that he, it is a language that he is going to have to learn. A good therapist can guide them. Um, and ultimately, there's also a fantastic book about the postpartum husband by Karen Kleiman that I would highly recommend. Any of those resources are available. I'm, I'm, I'll give you those resources. But um, the Postpartum Stress Center has listings of multiple books and resources that are available. Um, reach out and get help. Connect with another dad who's gone through a tough time with his wife as well, his wife's illness. Ultimately, as a, an empowered female, it is my job to take care of my health. And while I'm so grateful to have a partner and a spouse who can support me in doing that, but I have to be the one who says, I'm here. I need some help here. I'm struggling. 
And I think that the bigger question is how do we help women find their voice to be able to say, it's not so pretty for me right now. I feel terrible. I feel really scared of my thoughts. I'm afraid to stay home alone with the baby. I don't like how I'm feeling, but I don't even know how to tell you that because I'm afraid you're going to take my baby away from me. Or I'm afraid I have had women who said he might divorce me. Now that's like so far off the table, but there's this fear of being abandoned because of how frightened they are by their own thoughts and feelings. But with help, things get better. We learn new languages of communication. We learn new ways of asking for support. Thank you so much. I feel like I've learned so much and you've, you've touched upon a lot of topics that are either relevant to people personally or to some people they know, or it might be relevant in their future. So I really thank you so much for carving time out of your busy schedule. It's my pleasure. And it is my pleasure. Thank you for being the voice for so many women who need to hear this and who um, to give me the platform to have that communication with you and with those who are listening. You know, the more we talk, the more we know, the more we know, the more we can help others. And ultimately, this creating a healthier, stronger Jewish woman and Jewish community. Amen. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, so if people want to reach you, Devorah, or get help, do they have to be in the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area? Not necessarily, but I'm happy to connect with women and kind of guide them in wherever the resources are. I personally work with women via telehealth as well, and I'm connected to many different resources across the country and, and actually internationally for, for those that um, perhaps are you're reaching outside of the U.S. Uh, so they could just look me up on my website at devoraensign.com, and I'm happy to kind of connect with them via, via the website and uh, reach out and connect them. And if you have been enjoying this podcast, please make sure to write a review and subscribe and tell your friends to check us out as well. See you next time.